I wanted to begin tonight by acknowledging Christmas. I know that for some of us, um, it's quite a tender part of the year, time of the year, can put us on an emotional roller coaster. You know, there can be a lot of memories from the past. Um, just probably for a lot of us, a strong time of some form of inquiry. And I know for some of us it's quite confusing that we may feel like we lost touch with our Christian roots a long time ago. And yet we find ourselves in the midst of this cultural event. And it happens even inside a Buddhist meditation retreat center. (laughs) It is very deeply embedded in our culture. And I've seen in my own life where You know, there was the small child who simply loved Christmas, woke up with wonder and awe at four o'clock in the morning, and was very excited later to someone who was very rebellious and um, kind of took on a Scrooge-like persona. And you know, when you're practicing all year long generosity and then Christmas comes and you just find yourself shutting down, you know, it kind of makes you take a look. Although today I had some understanding or justification around that. I received in the mail a catalog. And when I first looked at it, I thought, wow, they have bad timing on their marketing. And then I opened it up, and inside was Valentine's Day's gift. (laughs) And it was just like, whoa, (laughs) what's this all about? (laughs) But, you know, I know for myself there's been um, a real wanting to look and to see how one can hold this time of the year in a beneficial way, in a way where one can feel kind of in harmony with the cultural event that's happening, and that spiritually one can look within and uh, at least have the mind pointed towards something that is wholesome. I recently read an article by a Unitarian minister named Jim Vanderweel, And Jim was telling a story about one day being in a restaurant, an Indian restaurant, with three friends. And while they were there, they got into quite a lively discussion about different faiths. And then at one point in the conversation, uh, the waiter, an Indian waiter, pipes up and says, you know, in our country, Jesus was the Dalai Lama. And then he went on to explain to them um, how, as is with reincarnating lamas, they're identified before their birth, and then sages prepare to go out and find them. And then there was three wise men arrived from the east, and he said, isn't India to the east of Israel? And to which everyone agreed. And then he concluded by saying that Jesus had disappeared from his mid-teens to 30s and had gone to India, stayed in an ashram, and then had come back with the teachings that he'd received um, to Israel, with his teachings being on peace, love, and mercy, and brought this back to his homeland. So this prompted Jim to do some research. And he discovered that the first Dalai Lama lived in 1391. So in seeing that, he went, oh, the waiter's wrong. And then he continued doing research, and he discovered that actually there was uh, reincarnating lamas going back to the ninth century before Christ. And so then he thought, well, maybe the waiter was right. 
So he started looking into different cultural views on Jesus and discovered how much they varied according to the culture and how um, it took on identities from that culture, it took on the mythology um, of cultures, and then he saw how this could bring one person at least to believe that Jesus was the Dalai Lama. And to this he simply said, Namaste. I like the story because it points to who was Jesus? Who knows? Who was Buddha? Who knows? And yet, all of these beings, these great beings of which there's great traditions that have emerged around um, these figures, how these people, these beings, become, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, our spiritual ancestors. The Dalai Lama refers to Jesus and Muhammad as bodhisattvas, or manifestations of Buddha. This being a time of year when we can get in touch with our spiritual ancestors, to beings whom brought light into this world, who brought um, teachings on wisdom and compassion, who inspired others, They help us to turn towards that which is meaningful in life, that which is honorable. They help us to find refuge in what times feels like a brutal and cold world. I was wondering about if we always took the time to celebrate the birth of any religious leader as a time of putting aside our differences and turning our minds towards that which is good, that which is true, noble, and wise. Maybe it would be a different world. But on Christmas, anyways, it's a time where some people turn their minds towards that which is helpful, that which embodies love, compassion, wisdom. Also with Christmas, there's often the acknowledgement of kindness and care through the offering of gifts. So if we were at Sarah's talk last week, we might realize that um, many of us haven't learned to embody this kindness and care in the purchasing of the gifts, (laughs) but (laughs) that actually hopefully these have some intention of goodness behind them. Tonight I just wanted to uh, remind you of the precious gift that you are offering at this time in sitting here and doing this practice. Only recently I was reading a book. um, It was called The Bond Between Women, A Journey of Fierce Compassion. And this has in it many stories about women, uh, mythological deities that embody fierce compassion, and also women in the world who are 
actively engaged in this fierce compassion. You know, some of these women being uh, women in Argentina who have protested about the, the disappearance of their family and friends a number of years ago, and who by doing this active protest actually put their own lives in jeopardy. Or women in Nepal whom are opposed to the child prostitution that is happening where young girls are actually sold by their families into prostitution. Or to um, the sisters of Mother Teresa, who so actively work with the, the aging and the dying and the poor. In reading about many of these women, it once again brought to my own mind the question, am I doing enough? Am I, in the way that I'm living my life, doing enough? And as inevitably happens, whether uh, whenever I turn this question, I come in contact with the intention behind a lot of what my, pra- my life is about, which is about practice, which is about teachings, which is about a practice that seeks to go right to the very roots of insanity, of cold-heartedness, of the despair that we experience in the world, going right into these roots of the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Our gift to the world is seeking to uproot these forces. It's an an amazing offering. I'd like to share with you a quote from uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he was speaking about the cultivation of love and great compassion. And he'd just spoken in this article about love and compassion not being able to be held as an imagination or a wish alone, and having a genuine intention to engage in the tasks of relieving suffering. So he goes on to say, although you have developed the strong courage and the determination to work for the benefit of other sentient beings, ask yourself whether or not you really possessed the capacity and capability to bring them genuine happiness. It is only by your showing living beings the right path leading towards omniscience and by living beings, for their part, eliminating the ignorance within themselves that they will be able to gain lasting happiness. Although you might be able to work for other sentient beings to bring them temporary happiness, bringing about their ultimate aims is possible only when these beings have taken upon themselves the the initiative to eliminate the ignorance within themselves. The same is true of yourself. If you desire the attainment of liberation, it is your responsibility to take that initiative to eliminate the ignorance within yourself. You must also show the right path to living beings. And for that, first of all, you must possess the knowledge yourself. 
So long as you yourself are not completely enlightened, there will always be an inner obstruction. Therefore, it is very important that you work for your own such achievement of the completely enlightened state. By thinking in such terms, you will be able to develop the strong belief that without attaining the omniscient state, you will not be able to fulfill what you set out to do and truly benefit others. So having to do the work within as an expression of compassionate action. And yet it won't mean that uh, we don't express compassion in the world in different ways. But through the teachings, uh, through the teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path that I've been speaking of, if we can let these teachings guide what we do, what we say, how we live, it helps us to bring this wisdom into being. So tonight I'll be concluding the talk on the Noble Eightfold Path. And this is with all due respect to our spiritual ancestors and words of encouragement that they have provided. And in this tradition, we can know that the embodiment of wisdom and compassion is not a locked door, but it's open to each and every one of us who has the courage to endure upon this path. So the last of... uh, these factors of the Eightfold Path being that of right concentration. As Sarah mentioned the other night, concentration is what allows us to exclude distraction. It is a unifying force in the mind. Uh, It allows us to connect and sustain the attention with our object of meditation. It's one of the seven universal mental factors that arise in any moment of consciousness. And without these uh, factors, consciousness of an object would be impossible. So with that, there can be right concentration or wrong concentration. And right concentration is where uh, the object of our concentration is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. With concentration, we're harnessing the energy of the mind and directing it appropriately. The Buddhist dictionary defines concentration as the mental state of being firmly fixed or the fixing of the mind on a single object. This has an effect of gladdening the mind and keeping the hindrances temporarily at bay.
when concentration functions as the factor which fixes the mind on an object, it has the characteristic of non-wandering or non-distraction. And its function is to conglomerate or unite the associated states that manifests as peace and its proximate cause is happiness. So just taking a look at this, the mind being able to fix on an object, to be able to connect and sustain the attention. We know this has happened when the mind is no longer wandering or lost in distraction, where there is a keen interest in the object of meditation. And this happens when there is this unification in the mind, where the energy that is so often scattered and dispersed has become unified, which results in peace. There's quite a strong sense of peace when concentration is strong. One of the ways I've learned to detect it in my own mind is when it strengthens, it's as if the world becomes sacred, as if everything has this sacredness to it. The proximate cause or conditions that most readily give rise to the state of concentration is happiness. And the Buddha once said, the mind of one who suffers is not concentrated. We can notice in our own experience when we're disgruntled in some way how hard it is to concentrate the mind. Buddha compared the unconcentrated mind with that of a fish thrown up on the dry land and flaps about. How often do we feel like that fish? So there are two paths that we've spoken of from time to time leading to deep concentration. One is the path of absorption, samatha, where the mind becomes absorbed into the object of concentration. And the other is the cultivation of momentary concentration, such as we do in the vipassana or insight practice. So first, speaking about um, absorption. This is where we're developing jhana through working with a single object and continuing to bring the mind back to that single object until it becomes deeply absorbed into that object of meditation. There's different objects that can be used. Uh, The breath is one. And we just use a point of the breath and just keep returning the mind over and over to that single point. We can also use um, earth elements, light, um, symbol, uh, images of water, space, Um, can use mantras, 
<clears throat> the Brahma Viharas are also a type of absorption practice. <clears throat> As the mind becomes deeply absorbed, we develop what are called the jhanic factors. The first of the jhanic factors is vitaka, which is applied thought or the aiming of the mind. And this has a way of invigorating and opening the mind, which helps to dispel sloth and torpor. The second jhanic factor is vichara, that of sustained thought, where it's where there's an immersion or rubbing of the mind into the object. And we come to know the experience in the experience. We know the breath within the breath. There's not something separate, analytical. And because of this, of there being no separation, this helps to dispel doubt, because there is no space for doubt to arise. The third jhanic factor is piti, joy, rapture, or delight. This is when the mind is freed from the hindrances, and there's a raptness of mind. The, the, the mind is just so interested, delighted in the object of meditation. <clears throat> and this counteracts aversion. The fourth jhanic factor is sukha, or a happiness of mind born of concentration. There's an ease and comfort in the mind. Um, can be quite blissful. And we find our experiences pervaded with contentment and calm. This helps to alleviate restlessness. The fifth jhanic factor is ekagata. It's a one-pointedness of mind that brings uh, the mind to a clear and focused unity. And this has a way of transforming desire into pure dhamma desire. There's a progression of jhanic states where the mind goes from the simple seclusion of mind and gradually lets go of the stimulating qualities in the mind and reaches a place of deep contentment, peace, ease, calm where the mind temporarily is freed from attachment and aversion. And this is the reason why uh, concentration doesn't itself lead to liberating insight. Because um, concentration does not uh, uproot the latent tendencies of mind. So while the mind is deeply absorbed, concentrated, we do experience a purity of mind, but this is very conditioned. And that, you know, once those conditions begin to change, latent tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion will resurface. But even though it doesn't lead to um, complete enlightenment itself, it is very, very helpful. 
because it brings a great power to the mind, a great strength to the mind. The mind becomes malleable, wieldy, um, and then can be turned to the changing nature of experience. And, you know, back in the time of the Buddhas, concentration practice was very prevalent. And then the Buddha took it one step further into this liberating insight. So in Vipassana meditation, we are um, developing strong concentration that comes through the momentary concentration. Our object of meditation changing moment by moment, and yet there is the continuity of mindfulness, of staying present moment by moment. In Vipassana meditation, there are also what are called Vipassana jhanas, but they differ to the uh, samatha jhanas in that uh, the mind is not so deeply absorbed uh, that it can still see the changing nature of experience. And so the Vipassana jhanas are actually marked by um, insight, different stages of insight, where the mind gets absorbed into uh, dharma, or seeing things as they are. The first um, Vipassana jhana has insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. The second uh, Vipassana jhana has insight into the rising and passing away of all phenomena. And the third has insight into seeing things as they really are. And the last insight is into the nature of conditioned reality, which brings about deep peace. The Vipassana jhanas also go through a progression from the happiness of seclusion to the happiness of concentration to the happiness of contentment and to the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. With the ultimate jhana, being the complete release of the mind. There is a danger at many points along the way that we will get attached to deep states of calm of peace. You know, at times in our practice, it gets so pleasant and so effortless that we believe 
that this is it. But it is only with deep insight into the nature of conditioned reality that we can really uproot this force of craving, that we will find the mind that is free of any identification. The peace that we find from the concentrated mind is very vulnerable, fragile. And at times we do have to remember this, to know that yes, this may be peaceful, it may be calm, it may be very still, but looking to see if there's any form of identification in the experience. Through bringing together all of the factors of the Eightfold Path, we cultivate the ground for wisdom to dawn. We create the conditions in which clear seeing that breaks through our conceptual uh, beliefs, views, and opinions about life can, um, that we can look deeper than this conceptual framework, that we can actually see, penetrate into the way that things really are. When we bring together these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, it's a way of disentangling the tangle, this web that we get caught in, this web of I, me, mine, of self. There's a maturation of wisdom that happens as we go below this conceptual level, where we do clearly see for ourselves the way things are. And out of this, we find right view, right understanding, which is just in in the true scene of the way things are. And this is supported by right intention, which becomes um, the true renunciation born of wisdom, where we will willingly let go of anything that leads to more suffering. Because we understand it, we see it, we know it, we realize it in our own experience. As Sarah mentioned in her talk the other night, Vipassana denotes an intuitive flash or knowing of insight. Insight into what's called the three universal characteristics of experience or the three marks of experience that are common to all experience. These three 
characteristics, seeing into impermanence, into the unsatisfactory nature of experience, and into the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience, are what we see into over and over again in practice. We'll find at times in our practice that we may see more clearly into one of these characteristics. You know, there may be a time where we keep seeing uh, the mind keeps falling upon the changing nature of experience, uh, where we just keep noticing the arising and passing away. Sometimes we might be aware of how unsatisfactory all experience seems to be. You know, we're, there's just nowhere that we find any sense of um, satisfactoriness. Or sometimes there's just a strong sense of this phenomena arising and passing away and not belonging to us. You know, that can be the mind hitting upon any of these characteristics. <clears throat> Each of the characteristics will have a different flavor and yet they're all intrinsically linked. The understanding of one characteristic will lead into the understanding of the other two. <clears throat> the power and the momentum that we build upon through sustaining mindfulness and concentration, doing this through wise effort, builds when it's built upon the foundation of wise conduct, enables the mind to experience impermanence very deeply. We see into impermanence, and not just things change, but we see into it in the stream of consciousness. We see into it how within this mind and body, no matter how solid things seem to be, that there is just this continual flow of changing phenomena. We see these phenomena come together in certain configurations and then the dissolving of these configurations. As we see this change over and over again, it helps us to see that this is just the way things are. It helps to keep us from continually looking for happiness in these constantly changing conditions. It keeps us from grasping at that which is ungraspable. And when we see deeply into this truth of impermanence, it becomes a great relief. A yogi recently described it as seeing that she had been barking up the wrong tree. Now that there's just a great freedom in being able to relax with this truth of the way things are. We're not then continually looking for happiness in places where it just can't be found.
we begin to see through this changing nature of experience that all of these experiences in themselves are unsatisfactory because they don't lead to that lasting happiness. Happiness is not to be found within them. It changes our relationship to life when we're not looking um, and can recognize that there's just this unsatisfactoriness. Recently, I was quite struck by a woman that I know whom had for years wanted to have children. Then finally, she had two children. And she was saying to me, you know, it's so amazing because it's still so unsatisfactory. And she loves her children deeply. It was not a statement of failure. It was just that mind that could see, oh, this too is unsatisfactory. This isn't going to bring that big hit of happiness. And when we you know, begin to get that glimmer of this unsatisfactory nature of experience, it helps to depersonalize the suffering in our lives, and it helps us to stand steadier in the investigation into suffering. So that each time we experience suffering, it's not a personal failing, but we can simply know that in some way we have identified with our experience. And as our understanding of impermanence grows, we begin to see how things are just born out of these interrelated conditions. And this even refers back to who we think we are. As we continue our practice, we see that the self that we refer back to is born out of conditions, and as the conditions change, that this experience of self changes. And we begin to see how this sense of self is simply arising and passing away at just the same way as all the other experiences in life are. It's just a momentary configuration that we take ownership of. We start to see just how in flux we are. That we're not some solid, separate unit, some solid, separate component of life. But this body, this mind, is continually in flux, process of changing conditions. The Buddha talked about the key to understanding anatta as being to understand the uncontrollable nature of experience. And looking in our lives, in our experience, as we sit, to see how uncontrollable life is. How we have no control over the thoughts or feelings that arise, no control over the sensations that arise in the body. 
He said, if there was a self, wouldn't we have control? Wouldn't we be able to control our lives in a way that we weren't exposed continually to unpleasant experience or that we weren't exposed to um, doing harmful things? Wouldn't we only have wholesome thoughts? Meditation is a great way to really come to know this uncontrollability. We start to relax into this changing display Changing conditions, coming together, being known, and dispersing, disappearing. Each time that we feel this contraction of self, simply looking into the experience, coming to know what is being known in this moment, what is being experienced. When we look into what we call self, what we discover that this is the place of grasping or clinging, identification. In seeing this, there's the releasing, the letting go, the relinquishment. So our insight leads us into the seeing of these three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. And these three characteristics are what's called the gateway to liberation, where the understanding can transform our view, can purify our view. Through this, one gains realization of the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha spoke of. One is able to see the truth of suffering. One is able to see the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned phenomena. And through this, there is the abandonment of craving, the cessation of craving, the touching of the deathless. And through this, one comes to know the way to live, to live that from the place of freedom. One begins to walk the noble Eightfold Path. we find with this path in this tradition, there's talked about four different stages of enlightenment. So it can sometimes be that you know, there's some degree of freedom in the mind, and yet the path goes on. We continue to practice. We keep going until the mind is completely free.
So just a brief review of the Noble Eightfold Path, the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Right view, the path both beginning and ending with right view, begins with the insight into the nature of suffering that is shared by all beings and the movement of heart to alleviate that suffering, to find the way out of suffering. And it culminates in the understanding of the way things are and the realization of the Four Noble Truths. The next is right intention, and this is the volitional aspect of right view, the mental energy that directs our actions. Buddha spoke about in three ways as being um, having renunciation as a means to working with craving or desire, having the intention of goodwill to work with anger and aversion, and the intention of harmlessness, which develops compassion. Right speech, through recognizing the power of speech, one learns to use words in a way that are helpful and harmonizing. In doing so, we speak that which is true, useful, kind, gentle, and say or speak only that which needs to be said. Right action being to live our lives in a way that creates harmony, to refrain from harming living beings, to refrain from taking that which has not been freely offered, and to refrain from sexual misconduct. right livelihood, being that the way that we provide for ourselves helps support a world that is at ease, um, at peace, and that our business pursuits employ right speech and right action. Right effort, being a prerequisite for all of the other factors of the path, for without it, we would never even begin to walk this path. Right mindfulness being letting our minds be anchored in clear perception, and this allowing for us to see things as they are. Right concentration, a one-pointedness of mind where all the mental faculties are united and directed to our object of meditation. I remember doing um, an intensive retreat with Sayadat Ujanika, one of my Burmese teachers, and he loved to describe how when we are being mindful of the movement of the foot, we are developing the Eightfold Path. And he describes it as, when the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, we have to make mental effort and that is right effort. Because of that mental effort, we can be mindful of the movement. That is right mindfulness. When the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, it is concentrated on it for a moment. But the moment the concentration becomes continuous and constant, 
stronger and deeper, that concentration is right concentration. The mental state which leads the mind to the object of meditation is right thought. In this way, the mind becomes well concentrated on the object of meditation, the movement of the foot. Then it penetrates into the true nature of the physical process of the movement, knowing it as a natural process. That knowing or understanding of it as a natural process is right understanding. While we are engaged in our mindfulness meditation, we abstain from wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. This means that we are also including the three factors included with sila, right speech, action, and livelihood. Any moment we are mindful of any mental or physical process, we are developing the Noble Eightfold Path. When we develop the Eightfold Path, we remove false view by the power of right understanding and can enter stream entry or the first stage of enlightenment. So in any moment of mindfulness, practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is really the how-to of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, It's where we find the components of the practice. It's a gradual training in speech, action, thought, and the application of our attention. It's the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It's the path that the Buddha taught to anyone who is ready to hear, regardless of their race, creed, color. It's a path that we can cultivate in every moment of our lives. And it's a path that no one can walk for us, that we have to do ourselves. And there's also an old saying, some run swiftly, some walk, some creep painfully, but all who keep on will reach the goal. just to close with some words from the Buddha. It is possible that a well-aimed spike of bearded wheat or bearded barley, if pressed by hand or foot, will cut into the hand or foot and draw blood. Why is that? Because the spike is well-aimed. In the same way, it is possible that if one's views are well-aimed, one's development of the path is well-aimed, they will cut into ignorance, give rise to clear knowing, and lead to the realization of unbinding. Why is that? Because one's views are well-aimed. And how do we well a- do well-aimed views and a well-aimed development of the path cut into ignorance, give rise to clear knowing, and lead to the realization of unbinding? There is a case where a monk develops right view dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, resulting in letting go. One develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, 
right mindfulness, right concentration, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. This is how well-aimed views and a well-aimed development of the path cut into ignorance, give rise to clear knowing, and lead to the realization of unbinding. Let's sit for a moment. May our view be well-aimed to lead to the cessation of suffering in service of the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.